Last week, we saw the completion of the wall in Nehemiah chapter 6. It was a miraculous work that was accomplished in a remarkable amount of time, so much so that the surrounding nations, it was clear to them, God is at work. God has completed this task among His people. Right, the, the people surrounding Jerusalem were intimidated because they were so clear that God was doing something. There was something that the people, there was no way they could have done this on their own. So there was a higher power that was at work and the people said their God has done this task for them. So the wall is complete. However, as we continue on in the story of Nehemiah, what we learn is the rebuilding is not. The physical building up of the walls is complete. However, there is still spiritual rebuilding that God is working. Uh, God is still going to be at work in His people to produce the kind of people, to produce the community of People that he desires that will bring him glory as they live out obedience to him and live out their their faith as God has called them to. So as Nehemiah continues, we're going to see that spiritual rebuilding that's going to take place in the people of God. The, the spiritual rebuilding that's going to create in them faithfulness. And that's our focus today is faithfulness. God is at work to make his people into a faithful people. So if the people of God are going to be used on the mission of God, it's going to require their faithfulness to God. So turn with me to Nehemiah 7. The sermon is titled, Rebuilding a Faithful Community. Rebuilding a Faithful Community. I'm taking an extra drink to prepare for this text that I'm going to read. This is a long one. Um, This is going to be like when we went through Nehemiah 3. Uh, And I told you you had to brace yourself, (laughs) prepare yourself, and to give me a little grace as we read through this. This is one of those texts uh, that we're going to see a big long list, mostly of names uh, and some numbers. However, as I said with Nehemiah 3, I want to remind you again, some of you weren't here for this, uh, the reason that we still read these texts, even though this is kind of long and it's a bit of a labor to listen to and to read through a list of people's names uh, in Hebrew, uh, it is what we believe about God's Word that, gives us, that causes us to give the same amount of attention to texts like this. Right? We believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and that it is profitable. Second Timothy 3 teaches us that. And we confess that here at Dogwood Church. And so when we get to these texts, we still work through them because we believe this is God's word and it is profitable for us. And so we're going to read through this text. It'll take us a little bit longer than normal. Uh, but... I do believe there is some wonderful truths for us in the word this week uh, about a faithful community, which is what we desire to be at Dogwood Church, a faithful community that is serving our God. 
So, Nehemiah 7, starting in verse 1. When the wall had been rebuilt, I had the doors installed, that the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. Then I put my brother Hanani in charge of Jerusalem, along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. I said to them, Do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot, and let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their post and some at their homes. The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and no houses had been built yet. Then my God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the genealogical records of those who came back first. I found the following written in it. These are the people of the province who went up among the captive exiles deported by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Each of them returned to Jerusalem and Judah to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Naamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpareth, Bigvai, Nehem, and Baana. The number of the Israelite men included Parosh's descendants, 2,172, Shephatiah's descendants, 372, Era's descendants, 652, Pahath Moab's descendants, Jeshua. Jeshua's and Joab's descendants, 2,818. Elam's descendants, 1,254. Zatu's descendants, 845. Zakai's descendants, 760. Benui's descendants, 648. Bebai's descendants, 628. Asgad's descendants, 2,322. Adonikem's descendants, 667. Bigvai's descendants, 2,067. Aden's descendants, 655. Ater's descendants of Hezekiah, 98. Hashem's descendants, 328. Bezai's descendants, 324. Harif's descendants, 112. Gibeon's descendants, 95. Bethlehem's and Netophah's men, 188. Anathoth's men, 128. Bethazmaveth's men, 42. Kirith-Jerim's, Kephira's, and Beeroth's men, 743. Ramaz and Gibeah's men, 621. Mikmah's men, 122. Bethel's and Ahaz's men, 123. The other Nebo's men, 52. The other Elam's people, 1,254. Hiram's people, 320. Jericho's people, 345. Lod's, Hadid's, and Ono's people, 721. Sina'ah's people, 3,930. The priest included Jediah's descendants of the house of Jeshua, 973. Emmer's descendants, 1,052. Pasher's descendants, 1,247. Hiram's descendants, 1,017. 
the Levites included Jeshua's descendants of Cadmiel, Hodeva's descendants, 74. The singers included Asaph's descendants, 148. The gatekeepers included Shalom's descendants, Ader's descendants, Talman's descendants, Akub's descendants, Hatita's descendants, Shobai's descendants, 138. The temple servants included Ziha's descendants, Hashufa's descendants, Tabaoth's descendants, Kiros's descendants, Siah's descendants, Padan's descendants, Lebanon's descendants, Hagabah's descendants, Shalmai's descendants, Hanan's descendants, Gidel's descendants, Gahar's descendants, Riah's descendants, Rezin's descendants, Nakoda's descendants, Gazam's descendants, Uzzah's descendants, Pasea's descendants, Bezai's descendants, Mienum's descendants, Nephishim's descendants, Bakbuk's descendants, Hakufa's descendants, Harhur's descendants, Basilith's descendants, Mahida's descendants, Harsha's descendants, Barkas's descendants, Sisera's descendants, Timah's descendants, Naziah's descendants, Hatifa's descendants. The descendants of Solomon included Sotai's descendants, Sophereth's descendants, Parida's descendants, Jayala's descendants, Darkon's descendants, Gedel's descendants, Shephatiah's descendants, Hatil's descendants, Pachareth Hazabame's descendants, Ammon's descendants. All the temple servants and the descendants of Solomon's servants, 392. The following are those who came from Telmela, Telharsha, Carib, Adon, and Emmer, but were unable to prove their ancestral families and their lineage were Israelite. Delia's descendants, Tobiah's descendants, and Nakoda's descendants, 642. And from the priest, the descendants of Hobiah, the descendants of Hakaz, and the descendants of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and who bore their name. These searched for their entries in the genealogical records, but they could not be found. So they were disqualified from the priesthood. The, governor's order, the governor ordered them not to eat the most holy things until there was a priest who could consult the Urim and Thummim. The whole combined assembly numbered 42,360, not including their 7,337 male and female servants as well as their 245 male and female singers. They had 736 horses and 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Some of the family heads contributed to the project. The governor gave 1,000 gold coins, 50 bowls, and 530 priestly garments to the treasury. Some of the family heads gave 20,000 gold coins and 2,200 silver minas to the treasury for the project. The rest of the people gave 20,000 gold coins, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. The priests, Levites, gatekeepers, temple singers, and some of the people, temple servants, and all Israel settled in their towns. And we'll stop at that point. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you for bearing with me through that. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to examine the uh, rebuilding of a faithful community. Father, you are good, and you are always faithful to your people. And I pray that we will continue to see that, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in us as individuals and work in us as a church that will continue to produce us as a faithful community. Uh, faithfulness to you, God, for your glory. Work for those purposes. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So, focusing in on a faithful community. Uh, Last week, we started seeing the, uh, the work in spite of opposition, just staying focused on the task, staying uh, strong in what the Lord had and depending on the Lord for the work that he had for the people. And now we're going to see as he's bringing all of these people back in uh, that the people matter to God. They're recorded here because they matter to God and he is going to use them. He's going to use their faithfulness to accomplish his mission. So the first truth that we're going to see here about a faithful community is this. A faithful community requires faithful leaders. A faithful community requires faithful Leaders, Let's look back at those first three verses. When the wall had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. Then I put my brother Hanani in charge of Jerusalem, along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. I said to them, do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot and let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the cities of Jerusalem as the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their post and some at their homes. And so the thing I want us to see in these first three verses is the importance of faithful leaders. You've probably heard the statement in some context or another, as the leader goes, so goes the nation. You may have heard that. Uh, as the leader goes, so goes the nation. As the leader goes, so goes the business. And the same is true for the church. The same is true for the people of God. As the leaders go, so goes the people. So goes the church. Throughout Israel's history uh, of the kings, you see the story over and over again, just a constant cycle. Uh, a faithful king leads the people in faithfulness to their God, and the wicked kings, who were not faithful, led the people in wickedness. It was a constant cycle for the people of God. And so here we see Nehemiah, as the task is growing of things that are needed for this community, he chooses individuals to be in charge of the people for Jerusalem. And his uh, requirement was that they be faithful men. 
Skills mattered, right? Their their skills and their abilities were important. But the thing that's noted here, we see in uh, at the end of verse 2, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. If this community of people that God was wanting to use for his glory was going to accomplish that, it was going to require that their leadership be faithful men. And we know that that's God's desire for leadership in the church. When God instructs us in the New Testament on leadership in the church, what He instructs us is finding men, placing men in those positions who are faithful. And that would go across the board for ministry leaders, elders, deacons, leaders in the church need to be known for their faithfulness first and foremost. Yes, if they have skills and abilities that can help them lead and do the things that are needed, that's great. But what's most important is faithfulness because without faithfulness the people are going to be led down the wrong paths. When we, at the beginning of this year, we're getting ready to uh, start the process of examining new elders for Dogwood Church, uh, we talked in a, in a sermon from 1 Timothy 3 about the characters of the elders and what was expected of the elders. And we asked you to take 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5 to be the uh, guide for you as you're praying about names that you were going to recommend that would be examined for serving as elders, that you recommend names based off of those characteristics. And those characteristics are characteristics of a faithful man, right? So let's just look at one of those. Titus chapter 1, starting in 6. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not, a gr- not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. That description is the description of a faithful man. Someone who's pursuing faithfulness to God. I'm thankful, one of the things I'm thankful for about serving here with the board of elders that we have is that they are faithful men. The men who, who serve alongside of me as leaders of this church are faithful to God. Perfect? Absolutely not. Not one of us. But they are faithful men. And they are desiring to be led by the Spirit of God for us to lead this church in the way that God wants us to be led. And so I'm thankful for that, that we have faithful leaders here. So, for us, as we are reminded that a faithful community requires faithful leaders, first and foremost, to my fellow elders, to the deacons here, to the ministry leaders here, 
This is a call and a reminder to us of our call to faithfulness, first and foremost. Yes, use our gifts and our skills and our abilities to help lead. But most importantly, let's pursue faithfulness to God in all areas. And then to the church, continue for as long as you are in the church to one install and look for leaders in the church who are known for their faithfulness to God and then follow the faithful leaders in the church. A faithful community requires faithful leaders. It's, 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 it is vital to the health of a, of a church. Second thing for us, the, a faithful community requires being identified as God's people. A faithful community requires being identified as God's people. And just like we did with Nehemiah 3, you don't have to worry. I'm not going to read all of uh, this giant middle section of names a second time for you. I do want to highlight just a couple of verses of this middle section. But what we're seeing there is an accounting of, a record of, who are the people of God? Who are the people of God? And so this list that's listed here, uh, it says that, actually, I'll just, let me read the, t- the verses that I'm going to read first, and then I'll get to that. So we're going to look at verses 4 through 6, and then we're going to jump ahead to verse 66 and 67. Nehemiah 7, 4 through 6, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and no house had been built yet. Then my God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the genealogical record of of those who came back first, and I found the following written in it. Then skipping down to verse 66 and 67, the whole combined assembly numbered 42,000. 360, not including their 7,337 male and female servants, as well as their 245 male and female singers. There was a record, an accounting of who are the people of God who've been brought back into the land, who've been brought back for God's purposes so that God can receive the glory. And so this list that is included here in Nehemiah 7 is actually an identical list to the book of Ezra. The first group of people that were brought back into the land came under Zerubbabel with Ezra. And this was 10 years prior. And so Nehemiah said, God put it on my heart to have a, a record of the people of God. And I examined the records and we have a recording of what it says. And so he had a list here that he references again. These are the people. These are God's people that have been brought back into the land so that God can use them. And so a faithful community requires being identified as God's people. Nehemiah realizes we need to have a clear record. We need the people to remember that they're here for a purpose, that God's people have been brought back in for a specific purpose. 
It wasn't just to rebuild the wall. That's a task that was necessary. But God had a purpose in bringing all these individuals back. God had a purpose in keeping these records safe so that we could say these are the people of God who are going to pursue faithfulness to God. And we see one of the ways that they pursue faithfulness. You may be wondering about the, why does it say certain people were not allowed to serve as priests? That wasn't intent to uh, just exclude certain individuals. God's law required that the priests were Levites. They were from the tribe of Levi. In his plans for his people, that was a requirement. So there were a group of people that could not prove their uh, ancestry. They couldn't prove whether or not they were Levites. And so that wasn't intended to say, like, well, we're excluding certain people. That was to say, we want to make sure that we're being faithful to God. If we're going to be a faithful community, that means we follow God's law. And if we can't prove that these people are from the tribe of Levi, then we want to say, you can't serve as a priest. They're not being told they can't come in and be a part of the faithful community. It was just an, an, a, the purpose of saying, we are going to stay faithful to God. We want to make sure that we are doing what God has asked us to do. And so the faithful community required them being identified. Who is God's people? Who has God brought back for this purpose. Our identity is important for us as we consider faithfulness to the Lord, as we consider what the Lord is calling us to. Our identity in Christ is vital for the work that the Lord has for us. There are places and organizations that do good things in our community, that stand up for good things in our community, but they aren't grounded in Christ. And so our identity is vital being known as the people of God on the mission that God has for them. And so in Ephesians, we see this recorded. Ephesians two, nineteen through 22. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. The New Testament language often speaks of family language, right? We've been brought into the family of God. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. Here, he says, you are God's Household, You've been brought in to God's household where Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the central piece that's holding it all together. And he says you are growing into a holy temple for God's dwelling, the Spirit. So identity as the people of God who have been saved by Christ and who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out the life that God is calling us to is important. If we're going to be a faithful community, it is important that we're identified as God's people on God's mission. So, 
as a church. I guess first and foremost, let me say this. That starts with salvation in Christ Jesus, right? The only way for us to be brought into the family of God, it isn't from coming to a church. It isn't in your family being a part of a church. It isn't in doing good things. The only way for you to be brought into the family of God is putting your faith in Christ for salvation. And so if you're here and you're thinking, I, I don't know much about that. I don't know what that means. Uh, or I, I've heard that my whole life, but I've never truly trusted Christ. That's your first step. That's the challenge for you today is to consider, have I trusted in Christ? And if not, take that step today. If not, then speak with myself, speak with one of the elders or ministry leaders here and say, hey, I would like to learn more about what it means to put my faith in Christ. And when you do, you are brought into the family of God. You are adopted as a, as a son or daughter of God. And then God forms you together in a community that he's going to use for his purposes. And then for us as the church, let's continue to pursue being known as God's people, right? That what we do and the things we stand for are done because we are God's people, Not pursuing just things of this world, but pursuing God and remaining faithful to God and serving God in the ways that he has called us to. And let Christ be the center of it all so that when we go go out, people know those people really do believe what they say. Those people really do love God. Those people really are following after Christ and are committed to his work. A faithful community requires being identified as God's people. Lastly, a faithful community requires sacrificial commitment. A faithful community requires sacrificial commitment. Verses 70 through 73 is going to uh, to point this out. Here, it's specifically talking about financial, sacrificial commitment. Nehemiah 7, starting in verse 70. Some of the family heads contributed to the project. The governor gave 1,000 gold coins, 50 bowls, and 530 priestly garments to the treasury. Some of the family heads gave 20,000 gold coins and 2,200 silver minus to the treasury for the project. The rest of the people gave 20,000 gold coins, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. The priests, Levites, gatekeepers, temple singers, some of the people, temple servants, and all of Israel settled in their towns. The work to rebuild the walls and, more importantly, the work for the ministry that God had for his people had to be funded. People had to give so that those things could happen. In God's design, he had required that the Levites, uh, they would receive, the people who served as priests, the people who served in those capacities, they received 
from the people. They were given food, they were given portions of things so that they would have their needs met and the ministry could continue. And here we see the people of God, all of the people of God, a part of contributing to the treasury so that the project was funded and so that the ministry could be met so that the things of the ministry could be done so that the Levites and the gatekeepers and the temple singers could all settle and do the things that God had called them to do. It was a sacrificial commitment from the people to say, we will give as God has called us to, we will give to support the ministry that the Lord has to support the work that the Lord is doing in and among us. And that's God's desire still today in the church is a sacrificial commitment, a commitment to give to the church for the ministry that the Lord has. We see it in many places in the New Testament. One of those is in 2 Corinthians. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is going to encourage the Corinthians to complete the task of uh, an offering that they had committed to give at a previous time. And he's going to encourage them by, one, giving them an example from another group of believers who were faithful to sacrificially give. And then he's going to encourage them by reminding them of the sacrificial commitment of Christ himself towards us. And so we see this in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4, and then I'll skip down to 9 through 12. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And then skipping down to verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter, I'm giving you advice because it's profitable for you who began last year not only to do something, but also to want to do it. Now also finish the task so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable. According to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Faithful community requires sacrificial commitment. And here that's talking about, yes, there's sacrificial commitment in other ways too. But this is specifically talking about the sacrificial commitment of financial giving. And that passage in Corinthians talks about the importance of there being an eagerness. Like, I, I want to give towards this. I'm eager to give towards this. Tony Evans wrote, this is about the, that passage in Nehemiah, verses 70 through 73. He wrote these words, The funding problems in our, many of our local churches face often come down to management. 
We, as believers, are not theological with our money. We must remember that all that we have is His and give generously. We're not theological with our money. That's my problem. I don't know if that's a problem for you. I know that's a problem for me. I often think of my giving as not with eagerness. He talked about that the people of Macedonia begged to be able to do it. Would you please let us give to the ministry? They were poor. They were in poverty. And they were saying, would you please let us participate in the work of the Lord? And I'll be honest, I, my heart doesn't often think an eagerness. That happens sometimes. You hear about some great thing that's happening. You're like, oh man, I could be a part of that and I'll support it. But the regular giving to the church, I often don't think of it with eagerness. I think of it as just an obligation. I think of it as a, how much do I have to give, right? Uh, and my mind gets consumed with, with the things I want. That's stuff that goes on in my heart and probably many of your hearts too in different ways. My intent, I hope you will know, because I've been convicted by this personally, my intent is not to stand up here and uh, scold you over your giving to the church. That's not my goal of to say, you're not doing your part. My intent is to challenge each and every one of us. Every person who calls Dogwood Church home, challenge us with what does God's Word say about faithfulness in giving to the ministry. The money that we give to Dogwood Church helps support the ministries of the church. And I think, as I've been thinking about that this week, I, I think a, a way that I can start to write my heart, obviously I need the Holy Spirit to continue to work in me, but a way that I can start to write my heart is to think the money that's given to the church is being used so that more people can hear the good news of the gospel. People that are lost and are going to hell can hear that salvation is available in Christ Jesus. I could, if I could start to realize that, if I could start to think of the money that I give to the church, disciples are growing and have the opportunity to grow because I'm taking part. I have the ability to take part in the ministry of the church. Needs can be met because I'm eagerly giving to the ministries of the church. And in all of that, God gets the glory. God gets the glory. And that's what we desire. So when we get to participate, we all get the opportunity to participate in the work of the Lord through the local church by giving faithfully to the ministry. And as we do, it helps us grow in godliness and faithfulness to God as we give sacrificially to the ministry. And so I want to challenge each one of us who calls Dogwood Church home to spend time in prayer 
about the finances of the church uh, and about your financial giving to the church. Every one of us, I'm not saying all of you, every one of us who says, this is my church home, would you pray about the finances of the church and would you pray about your financial giving to the ministries of the church? And let's pursue faithfulness to the Lord. Some of us, He may call us to start giving on a more faithful, regular, consistent basis. Some of us, the Lord may call us to give a one-time additional offering to the church to meet the needs that are happening right now in the church. And some of us, the, the Lord may call to increase what we give currently for the future ministries of the church. And so whatever it is the Lord's calling us to, our desire should be faithfulness. We're going to be faithful to the Lord. And let's pursue that through sacrificial commitment and sacrificial giving to the ministry of Dogwood Church. Faithfulness. It's what we all desire. You wouldn't get up on Sunday mornings and come here almost certainly if there wasn't at least some desire of, I want to be faithful. Faithfulness is what we desire as we follow the Lord, and we know it's what the Lord desires from us. We know that He desires it so much that He was willing to give us His Holy Spirit, place His Spirit in us to shape us into the people that He desires us to be. And so, church, let's continue to... Be a faithful people. Let's follow faithful leaders. Let's continue to be identified as the faithful people of God who are on the mission of God. And let's commit to the work of God. Let's commit to faithfulness to the work of God by sacrificial giving to the ministry of the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the challenge to faithfulness. I pray that your Holy Spirit will, will work in each of us and, and work in us as a church as a whole so that we will continue to be known as a faithful people. And we pray that it will be for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.